Is the state of Florida defending slavery? Is Tim Scott on the verge of a moment? And is Jason Aldean promoting lynching? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the sage of authenticity woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Waterstone and the Free the Economy podcast from CEI. If for some reason you're not already following us on streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Charlie, we've had this controversy brewing since late last week where Kamala Harris most prominently has been attacking the state of Florida for its standards related to African-American history and slavery in particular. As you outlined in a piece late last week, there are about 190 elements to this curriculum. One of them has to do with skills acquired by African-Americans while they were enslaved. The offending line says that students will learn about uh, slaves who um, acquired skills in some instances uh, that were used to their personal benefit. This has been characterized basically as the entirety of the curriculum and has been characterized as Florida teaching that Florida, that sorry, that slavery was good for slaves. Every time that Ron DeSantis has explained what's going on here, the headlines are Ron DeSantis once again says that slaves benefited from slavery. What do you make of it? This has irritated me enormously, in part because I live in Florida and therefore care about what is taught. There are some people on the right who downplay slavery. I've never been one of them. I have written goodness knows how many times for you, Rich, that what African Americans suffered under slavery and Jim Crow ought to be described as a tyranny. You know, sometimes you hear Americans say, it hasn't happened here, by which they mean the sort of tyrannies we've seen in Russia or China or Nazi Germany. But that's just not true. I think that by any of the definitions that would have been adopted or understood by the founders, black Americans suffered under a tyranny, a tyranny far worse than the one that was the proximate cause of the American Revolution. This course in Florida does not deny that. It is extremely annoying to see headlines everywhere and to see the vice president of the United States flying down to Jacksonville to pretend otherwise based on a cynical isolation of one line, a factually correct line, from a course that has hundreds and hundreds of provisions within it. The line in question is set within a curriculum that, and I'll quote from it, talks of the harsh conditions and their consequences on British American plantations, e.g. undernourishment, climate conditions, infant and child mortality rates of the enslaved, the free. That talks of Poor nutrition, rigorous labor disease that records overwhelming death rates that describes Africans resisting slavery. 
that concedes that Florida, like the entire South, tried to prevent slaves from escaping, and that covers much more than slavery, that starts with the conditions in the slave trade, and that ends with the integration of the University of Florida. But the idea that Kamala Harris is trying to convey here, that, quote, Florida wants to teach children that enslaved people benefited from slavery is false. That is not the overall narrative thrust. It's not even the marginal narrative thrust. It's not even the thrust of the one line to which she objects. I think that matters. I'd be quite happy to criticize Florida on this front, as I've criticized conservatives on race before. But I'm not going to criticize Florida here because this is a game. This is a Mott and Bailey game where Harris gets up before an audience and says that Florida is teaching children that enslaved people benefited from slavery, which conveys that the overall course does this, that that is what Florida does. That there's something wrong with Florida's government and schools and people. But then when challenged on it, falls back on the hyper-literal fact that this course says benefited at some point. Now, we should address that, I think. It does say, as one item within 191 references to slavery, slaves, African-Americans, abolition, and so on, that some slaves learned skills which in some cases benefited them. That is true. Yes, if you want to demagogue that, you can pretend that to acknowledge that is to endorse slavery, to say slavery was good or worthwhile, or that it doesn't matter as much. No one is saying that. No one in their right mind would say that. That is the equivalent of saying that because a few couples met in concentration camps, that the Holocaust was worth it. Do we really think that when those people celebrate their wedding anniversary, that that's the argument they're making? Or the book you mentioned uh, by uh, David Hackett Fisher? David Hackett Fisher, yeah. So the, the subtitle of the book that you wrote about, which is, from what I understand, one of the uh, one of the works on which Florida's course is based, and is designed. Have, have, they, have they said that? Yeah. So, it. so William Allen, when yep. he gave his interview with CBS, cited it as one of the primary sources that was used. Okay. Yeah. It's and a, encouraged it's a, people to read it. It's a wonderful book. I mean, he's an amazing historian. It's one of these books. Everything he writes pretty much is you know six hundred, seven hundred pages. So they always sit on my shelves for a very long time. And this contributes was occasion to pick it up. And, and he's just, uh, on top of everything else, just has this uh, really delves deep into the cultures he's writing about and how they affected uh, particular localities. Right. And, you know, he, he um, writes a lot about the, the maritime culture and the Chesapeake that was highly influenced by the African-Americans who were there, who were really adept at it. And it's just, it's an amazing work. But anyway. Well, to highlight the point, that book is titled African Founders, How Enslaved People Expanded American Ideals. And if you wanted to, you could demagogue that book in exactly the same way as the vice president is demagoguing that one line from the course. 
The one line in the course is how slaves develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. And the argument that follows from that is, aha, you therefore think slavery is good. Well, let's look at this wonderful book by David Hackett Fisher. It is called How Enslaved People Expanded American Ideals. Expanding American Ideals is good. Rich, you've read the book. He's not saying this was bad. He's praising the African founders in his words. Well, those enslaved people only got to expand American ideals, which is a good thing, because they were slaves. You could play this game with anything. Mm -hmm. You could say, therefore, David Hackett Fisher must think that slavery was good. Of course he doesn't think that. He no more thinks that than the people who point out that our triage processes in hospitals came from the Crimean War, our pro-Crimean War, or that the people who point out the extraordinary medical and technological advancements we saw in the First World War are praising the Battle of the Somme. This is an anti-intellectual way of looking at this question. And I'll finish by saying it's also a way that in other contexts, progressives profoundly dislike. One of the things that I was taught over and over again when I was studying history by progressives was that it re-victimizes victims to strip them of their agency when writing about them in historical context. I think that's one of the reasons that David Hackett Fisher and others have written books like this. Another of the books that was cited was Henry Louis Gates, his slave narratives. If you treat people who have been victimized, which of course slaves were, profoundly so, if you treat them as an undifferentiated mass of automatons, you are denying their humanity. It is of course true that these people were victimized. It was disgusting. But they also, in some instances, managed to rise above it and fell in love and got married and then were separated because of it. They learned skills. Some of them bought their freedom. They made a life. They made the best of their situation. There is nothing good that can come from denying that or pretending that to talk about that is to endorse slavery. And I agree with the progressives who, until they needed to attack Florida made that point over and over again, that human beings have agency even when they're in the direst of circumstances and that it is important to recognize that historically. So, Jim, uh, I endorse everything Charlie said. It's part of the historical record that uh, slaves, some of them, gained skills and it it uh, was used to their uh, benefit. They either got uh, paid more, you know, people neglect slaves got paid a little bit, you know, meager wages, or they get hired out and be able to keep a little bit for themselves. This is an endorsement of slavery. It's the endorsement of the pluck and the initiative of these individuals. And in some cases, wasn't the norm. You know, they they gain skills, be able to uh, buy their freedom, or would be you know freed after the war, and then went on to use their their skills to to build something. For themselves again, this, this is in no way an endorsement of the slave system, but I just wonder, you know, this is one of those things. It takes a sentence or two to explain, and usually in politics, that means you're losing. Rich, one of the things that jumps out at me is, let's say hypothetically tomorrow, Ron DeSantis dropped out of the presidential race. I'm not saying you should. Uh, in fact, I think you absolutely should stay in it. But let's just say he, you know, develops a health issue. Somebody he dropped. How much interest do you think national Democrats like Kamala Harris have in Florida's curriculum? Do you think you see a lot of New York Times op-ed pieces? Do you think you see uh, national Democrats pounding the table on this issue? My guess is interest in this issue would drop like a stone. And a big reason for that is because there is an enormous appetite for any narrative that can be used to say, 
hey, look, Ron DeSantis, that guy who just got, you know, reelected to office by 20 points in what used to be a swing state, he's really a racist. He's really a terrible person. And you should, you know, detest him. Because let me this way, as far, you know, I we don't see detailed reviews of the AP curriculum in states like North Carolina or South Carolina or Alabama. Maybe there's something controversial in there. Maybe there isn't. Nobody's, this is not big news because the governors of those states are not running for president. This is entirely a, you know, by proxy hit against DeSantis. And, you know, this is, it, it, you, this is kind of the standard playbook for them. It feels a little bit like the effort to demonize Georgia's voting reform law that Joe Biden famously said was eh, even worse than Jim Crow. It's Jim Eagle, you know, or Jim Crow 2.0. And that, in fact, had higher turnout in both the primary and the general election. And that, according to a University of Georgia poll, 0% of African-Americans said they had a bad experience while voting. Now, the thing is, for the Democrats, this works. Or this works well enough. Or at least this is part of the regular playbook. Um, their goal is to convince people that no matter how nice or normal or uh, reasonable or something that Ron DeSantis means, that he's not merely... Uh, a guy who, you know, tr you know uh, he's not really a bad governor. In fact, he's racist. And in fact, he makes, uh, just ask black Floridians. They're, they're being taught that slavery was a good thing. It's nothing of the sort, as Charlie laid out, spitting hot fire. This is one line in a very detailed and generally uh, thorough and well-regarded curriculum. But they have to make, you know, a mountain out of this molehill because otherwise, you know, people might vote for Ron DeSantis and can't have that happen now, can we? So, Noah, what have you thought of DeSantis's reaction here? The uh, reaction in kind of a Trumpified Republican Party always has to be, don't back down an inch and, and fight back. And I think that's appropriate here. But there are uh, people who've, uh, critics uh, in the party, even Will Hurd, Chris Christie, has said, look, he's being evasive here. He's not taking responsibility. He's you know, saying this committee came up with it, and he's governor, and he's ultimately responsible. So he's passing the buck. And I guess one alternate way to deal with it would be, look, I can see how people are reading it the wrong way. Uh, I'll, I'll make sure that's, that's changed. But of course, we're not saying that uh, slavery benefited slaves. Well, I will say that I have not been especially impressed with Ron DeSantis's efforts to defend a thoroughly defensible initiative here. I don't think he has done his supporters a very real service. Um, I also think that the also-rans like Will Hurd and Chris Christie, who are doing the left's dirty work for them, are operating under a flawed theory of this race that if they can snuff out Ron DeSantis's candle, theirs will burn brighter. They will not benefit as a result of taking down Ron DeSantis on this particular initiative, in part because it is one that Republicans support, and it is entirely justified. This is not an exercise in historical revisionism. It is a response to an exercise in historical revisionism, engaged by educational reformers trying to advance a pedagogy that Florida legislatively prohibited um, in an anti-CRT law, which posited that it is unacceptable to teach in public school curriculum the notion that colorblindness is tantamount to racism, which was part of this AP curriculum that was being advanced last year, late last year, early this year, and became very controversial. Um, it should be incumbent on conservatives, to say nothing of Republicans, to 
advocate for precisely the same uh, revisions to the curriculum along a more historical line and away from these faddish intellectual trends that overtook progressives after 2020 and in 2021-22. But I have not seen Ron DeSantis mount in a particularly effective defense of his conduct here. He, He will fully reject any premise that he does not agree with, but didn't do so here. Like he didn't reject the notion that's being um, retailed by people like Kamala Harris and most of the press. He sort of accepted it and then tried to revise it. Uh, and I don't think that's that's the right what, way to go about it. What do you mean here. by that? So this line that has um, uh, that the the media is obsessing over, which we've talked about over for the last 10, 15 minutes, um, is being you know, retailed as though it was a defense of slavery. Uh, and that's anti-scholarly, as, as Charlie has said. And if I were, if I, I'm certainly not in his position, and it's hard to judge somebody who's in the arena. Um, but if I were in his position, I would have pre- much preferred to hear a defense of the scholarship around that idea, rather than um, engaging on the terms that the media has set here, that this is somehow a defense of slavery. It is not. It is simply an accurate historical narrative. And what they want isn't a not accurate historical narrative. What that AP course advocates is a lot of very theoretical, um, highly revisionist, quasi-Marxist narratives around the intersection of African-American socialist movements and how Bobby Seale affected um, the trajectory of of African-American political thought and where LGBT advocacy and and neo-Marxist African-American theory intersects. I mean, it's all just trash. And and I would prefer to have seen that offensive mounted again. It was a very effective line of attack, and it produced a victory for Ron DeSantis in the amendment of this uh, AP African-American Studies program. Um, And he's sort of abandoning the terrain that he secured at great political cost uh, in favor of a less defensible position. And that just doesn't strike me as tactically smart. So Charlie, feel free to take that up, but do it in the context of the exit question, which is this, who will win politically in sheer political terms, putting aside the substance and the truth, this fight, Kamala Harris or Ron DeSantis? Well, I think at the moment it's 50-50. The fact that it is transparently absurd does not change the power that progressives have in the media and academia and the culture to advance this sort of falsehood. And I don't think DeSantis has done a good job here either. I agree with Noah. He sounded unprepared and unwilling to talk about it. He should have spent 45 seconds saying, look, this is a course that was put together by well-meaning experts that is comprehensive and that will teach Floridians about all of the ugly parts of their history as well as the good ones. It wouldn't have been too difficult to advance that argument. And while it is true that he didn't write this program, saying it in the way that he did sounded as if he was washing his hands of it. So I don't think he's done a good job. I do think, though, that in the long run... Florida will win out because there are, I presume, a majority of parents who want to know what their kids are being taught and will see this course 
I'm close. I mean, in the same document as that program was outlined is the curriculum for the Holocaust, which I read through as well, which is also comprehensive and makes it very clear what the Holocaust was. You know, I care about this because I'm a Florida parent. I, I suspect most other parents will too. And they will not prioritize Kamala Harris's lies over what they're seeing with their own eyes, even if the defenses of it from the governor aren't especially good. Jim Garrity, Kamala Harris or Ron DeSantis will win. In that matchup, a little while ago, I would have said Ron DeSantis would win easily. I still think he would, but I, you know, running for president uh, about this about this oh, controversy. DeSantis is, this controversy is correct. Uh, you know, I thought you were asking about a matchup between the two in twenty twenty four. No, 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 no. Who will win? Who will win this fight politically over the uh, over the, the curriculum, what it means, et cetera? I actually don't think this. This will per, the people who are inclined to agree with Ron DeSantis will agree with Ron DeSantis. The people who are already inclined to agree with with Kamala Harris. And I think most other folks will tune it out other than just bigly, oh, wasn't there some controversy about Florida teaching about slavery or something like that? I, I don't think this is going to resonate too much. So let me get back then to to the, the question you thought I was asking. So you think Kamala Harris might beat Ron DeSantis in a general election matchup? I'm less con- – okay, I would have said, you know, oh, no way that happens a few months ago. I, I think, you know, we having seen Ron DeSantis crush Charlie Crist in 2022 – I think a lot of us thought, ah, this is a guy who's got the skills and who's, you know, uh, instincts, political instincts and, you know, charisma and policy and way of thinking and rhetoric and all that stuff would translate very well to the national stage. I think in the last two months, that's not quite so clear. Um, I think it's safe to say that even though I don't think the Musk thing was the uh, self-destructive, you know, crashing on the launch pad, I think it's been a... uh, DeSantis clearly isn't where he wants to go. And I think there's you kind of get this vibe of, you know, Florida is where woke goes to die was the DeSantis pitch to the Trump voter. And the Trump voter just isn't that impressed by it so far. So I think you see a little bit of, I don't say, you know, he's not desperate. He's not flailing, but he's looking for plan and trying to enact plan B, which is not where he wanted to be. So Noah Harris or DeSantis on this controversy, who wins? In a political vacuum in which the only two people who exist are Ron DeSantis and Kamala Harris, and there are no other, uh, there's no other inputs that or or uh, other other actors here that are that they have to think about and that they're trying to outmaneuver. Ron DeSantis doesn't have a com- a competitor in Kamala Harris. I would love to hear the vice president riff extemporaneously for sixty unbroken seconds on what this curriculum is and what it does, and I would bet a lot of money on the idea that what comes out of that 60 seconds is incomprehensible and does damage to her position rather than advances it. So I'm going to say, Harris, unfortunately, I think this is a very effective lie. There's no doubt it's a a poisonous and stupid lie, but it's an effective lie. It, at the very least, puts DeSantis on the defensive, even if he's explaining it in the, uh, the, the clearest and most compelling way possible. So with that, let's hear from our first sponsor of this episode, Waterstone. When Patricia tried to donate to a conservative organization through her donor-advised fund, her request was denied. Why? Because they said she was trying to give to a hate group. 
That's why she switched to Waterstone, a donor-advised fund dedicated to upholding Judeo-Christian values. Waterstone is unique in the world of donor-advised funds. It accepts gifts of cash as well as real estate, business interest, oil, and more. They can help you receive an immediate tax deduction and make a difference for the charity of your choosing. With this charitable pooled trust, you can even generate a guaranteed income stream from your charitable giving. Waterstone strictly adheres to a Christian statement of faith, including a pro-life declaration, and does not give to charities that contradict these values. Waterstone is trusted by so many men and women of conviction that they give $10 million per month in charitable grants. They can work with you or your financial advisor to make a giving strategy that fits your needs. Contact Waterstone's Giving Strategies team today. For more information, by visiting waterstone.org. That's waterstone.org. Please check it out. So, Noah, you've been talking up Tim Scott for a while now, and there's signs. I wouldn't call it a moment yet, but there's signs that he's creeping towards a moment. He's beginning to get high singles, low double digits in a number of polls, and the aforementioned Ron DeSantis is not exactly sinking like a rock, but he's sinking like a bathtub toy that's not particularly buoyant. It's not the bottom of the tub, but it's not exactly the surface of the tub either. It used to be kind of unusual that DeSantis would be in the teens. You'd occasionally see those uh, polls, you know, get him 17, 18, 19. Now it's a little more unusual to see him in the 20s. There was one uh, New Hampshire poll that was encouraging for him that ha- had him back, I don't know what it was, 14 points or something from uh, Trump and uh, robustly in, in the 20s. But that's been the, the exception lately. So if you just look at the trajectory, it's been down for DeSantis and up for Scott. So let's leave the polls to one side for a second, because there are green shoots, as you described. But let's set the table. So last week started to see what was most likely, in my view, opposition opposition research on Tim Scott begin to find its way into the mainstream press. There was this video of somebody who once worked in a legislative office, uh, a Tim Scott legislative office, who then founded a consulting firm that does work with Tim Scott's PAC, who was filmed jocularly in jest, nevertheless, saying racial slurs in a video during a poker game. Um, this, to me, seems rather thin because when opposition research hits, it hits because it highlights a flaw in the candidate. And if you boil that message down, it would be, okay, well, either Tim Scott is an absentee manager or he's secretly favorable to people who are casually racist. Um, that's, he's, he's probably the least vulnerable candidate to that sort of hit. So it was weak. But then Political Playbook yesterday published a just a cascade of all the opposition research that they're getting, mostly, I think, from competing campaigns uh, on Tim Scott. Uh, They have to do with his support for criminal justice reform. They have to do with a statement that he gave in 1995 where he was very critical of the Democratic Party on race, but also the Republican Party on race. And it has to do with his foreign policy bona fides, which are not very well fleshed out. And Playbook kind of dismisses all these, just, you know, knocks them down as uh, either, uh, you know, unconvincing hits or uh, unlikely to land given the facts of this particular race. For example, on criminal justice reform, you can't really go after Tim Scott without going after the president who supported him, uh, which was Donald Trump at the time. So then you go to the polls and you take a look at the polls and you see, well, for example, Fox Business polls. 
came out over the weekend and found um, Tim Scott rocketing into uh, third place in Iowa behind Donald Trump, who leads by 30 points, uh, and behind uh, Ron DeSantis, who's declined to just 16 points. But he's in double digits in the first uh, caucus state. And in South Carolina, he trails Nikki Haley, but barely. And Nikki Haley beats Ron DeSantis in that survey. And I would be surprised, frankly, if both of these two favorite sons of the Palmetto State made it to that primary. Um, most likely somebody's, most likely, it's possible, and I think it's possible that somebody's going to run out of money or somebody's going to run out of steam, and it'll be one who manages to make it to that primary, one of these two. Uh, but you can see the outlines of a race in which Tim Scott begins to spend in earnest, and he's re reserved about $40 million in television in the early states, uh, and becomes a really formidable character. The more people see of him on the stage, the more they find his style, his affect, regardless of what he says, appealing. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't try to carve out the Republican primary electorate into distinct lanes and groups and maximize your appeal among this at the expense of that. He's running a more holistic campaign than that. And I think it's very appealing. And I think it could be a real threat to the singular anti-Trump candidate who emerges. Right now it's Ron DeSantis, but it might not always be Ron DeSantis. Uh, I think he's got, he's got room to run. Yeah, so Jim Garrity, obviously he has the, uh, the market niche cornered on cheerfulness in this race, but it's not faux cheerfulness. It's authentic, and that's part of his appeal as well. Indeed, Rich, here in Authenticity Woods, we appreciate authenticity. Um, I, I Look, I would love to see Tim Scott be the Republican nominee. I think Tim Scott is capable of winning by a wide margin. Um, there's a good portion of the Republican Party in the Trump era that has become obsessed with angertainment, uh, for lack of a better term. Whether you want to call it as Boebert, <coughs> did you Matt Did you Gage, just make that Marjorie up? Taylor Green. Well, no, no, this phrase has been around for a while, but I think that accurately, you know, the, rah, things have never been worse in this country. Blah, we're going to hell in a handbasket. Blah, blah, blah. You know, um, this this grievance-minded, angry, raging, and, and some of it's Trump, but I think almost almost everyone who proudly wears the MAGA movement label has some element of that. And I think as much as it might fire up some people, it is utterly repellent to a lot of voters, including white-collar professionals, suburbanites, soccer moms, etc., they very much prefer the Glenn Youngkin, nice, respectable, don't scare the horses type tone. Tim Scott can bridge that gap. You know, Tim Scott is indisputably conservative, but he's not threatening or menacing to everybody. He's cheerful. He's optimistic. He's hopeful. He has faith in America. Like faith in America is slow. This, in other words, I, I would love to hear everything Noah Rothman described come to fruition. I would love to believe that Tim Scott is on the verge of some massive breakout. He's been in the race for a couple, quite a while now. I don't feel like he's this enormously obscure figure in Republican circles. He's on Fox News plenty. He's given the response to the State of the Union, stuff like that. I, I suppose it's possible that there is some debate stage and America, Republicans who had previously been either in the Trump or DeSantis camps. And by the way, between the two of them, that's like, what, 70% of Republican voters, primary voters right now? You know, maybe close to 80? Uh, I'd love to believe that they're going to look at Tim Scott and say, whoa, this is great. This is appealing. This is not just something that can win. This is something that can like win over people to our cause. Um, 
but I'm not optimistic. I, I you know, like I, so far he has not caught fire. I suppose it's theoretically possible that people get a good look at him on a debate and say, oh, I love that guy. Um, but I think right now the appetite for angertainment is preeminent. And I just don't see, uh, and Tim Scott is sort of the antithesis of that. And my feeling is, is that, you know, he, you know, the, as, as kind of alluded to when Noah discussed the opposition research, one of the reasons everybody likes Tim Scott is that at least for now, or at least up until very recently, he wasn't any threat to anybody. As soon as he is a threat to somebody, you'll see people trying to tear him down. I agree with Noah. I think the opposition research dump was, was you know, silly and irrelevant and, and not all that effective. But at some point, you'll start hearing, Tim Scott's a nice guy, but he's not tough enough. Tim Scott's a nice guy, but he's got, you know, elected and reelected in South Carolina, which is pretty friendly territory for a Republican. Um, I don't know if that will hold water, but I think it's safe to say that um, the more Tim Scott gains ground, the tougher it is. And one of the great ironies, kind of as alluded to in our previous topic we discussed, when you're in a competitive Republican primary... It is in these, every Republican rival has an incentive to amplify attacks from the left and Democrats in the hopes that they'll be the last man standing. So, Charlie, there's potential that Tim Scott overtakes DeSantis and then just the DeSantis rationale and the alternative Trump evaporates. I think it'd be more likely uh, if Scott continues to gain that they, they both take a segment of the non-Trump vote that's a little different. And this Fox business poll with DeSantis at 16 was not great for DeSantis, obviously, but you they asked Trump supporters their second choice, and it was overwhelmingly DeSantis compared to the others, 34% DeSantis, then 14 Scott, 13 Ramaswamy, 13 Pence. Then you asked, uh, they asked DeSantis supporters second choice, and it was fairly evenly divided between Trump and Scott. 33% Trump, 23% Scott, which just shows DeSantis is um, trying to, and at least a little bit, drawing from pools of, for lack of a better word, the more conventional party represented by uh, Scott and the, the Trump party, obviously represented by Trump. Whether DeSantis can succeed in doing this is obviously a major question mark that's gotten bigger as the race has gone on, rather than smaller. But I think the, the question whether Scott can expand into that uh, mega element is even a, a bigger question mark. Let me preface this by saying that I am not as good an analyst of elections and coalitions as you are. But I am not convinced that the way in which many political commentators and even political scientists talk about primaries is correct. I'm not sure there are lanes. I think there are certainly different groups within political parties. But Tim Scott's best hope is that we see here what could well happen and that it's not currently showing up in the polls, and that is that Donald Trump's support continues to drop, when I say continues, it hasn't dropped within primary polling, but it has dropped among Republicans. His favorables have Mm -hmm. gone down. And that Ron DeSantis simply is not able to take the leap from governor to presidential candidate, and that Tim Scott can. Now, that is a lot of ifs in a row. But we do see these surges and 
movements and the products of momentum in politics in ways that we just don't anticipate. Mm -hmm. Go back to 2016, Jeb Bush was doing really well until he wasn't. Donald Trump was hovering around 10% until he wasn't. When Donald Trump was the front runner, there was a period in which he was caught by Ben Carson, who then dropped back down into anonymity. The key variable here, in my estimation, is going to be a Donald Trump collapse, whatever causes that, whether it is a debate, whether it's the first state primary that changes people's minds, whether it's another indictment or Trump ends up saying something that upsets people. Seems unlikely after eight years, but you never know. I just don't think it is possible to work out what the fallout will be if the thing that needs to happen first happens. In other words, if Mm -hmm. Donald Trump ceases to garner 50 plus percent of support within the Republican primary election, all hell's going to break loose. Mm -hmm. We will be living in a different world, a world that we haven't seen since 2015. Right. What what does it mean to be a former Trump supporter and a post-Trump, effectively a post-Trump party? That would be an event horizon. Yeah, so could Tim Scott rise quickly and meaningfully and sustainably in that environment? Sure. (laughs) I mean, there could be two moons by the end of the night as well. I have absolutely no idea what that America looks like. I would only say that my confidence and hope, if I were Tim Scott, would probably be greater than it was two months ago, because for whatever reason... DeSantis has not taken off yet. He's just not running a good enough campaign. And whether it's because he has the same voters as Trump and they just prefer Trump, or whether it's because DeSantis has made tactical errors that can be fixed, or whether it's because he's just not going to make it, I don't know. I find it impossible to evaluate. I do think Tim Scott's in a better position than he has been. I said, I think, last week that he had a 10% chance of winning the nomination. I'm willing to raise that risk to 15 Mm-hmm. Um, and that New Hampshire poll I mentioned that was good for DeSantis, it had asked favorable, favor, favorable, unfav ratings. And the highest, I believe, was uh, Scott. You know, Scott was still yeah. down in the ballot test, but Trump's fave, unfave was lower and DeSantis's fave, unfave was lower, lower. And I hate to say, Charlie, Vivek, I think, was also higher than both of them. Well, c- can I just make a very brief point on yeah. that? Because I agree that Tim Scott has not yet attracted attention and he has not yet been the subject of all of the slings and arrows that he will inevitably receive. But I actually do think that it's going to be more difficult to make Tim Scott unlikable than it is to make Ron DeSantis unlikable because Ron DeSantis has been the lightning rod governor of Florida during COVID and subsequently And the hit on Tim Scott that you hear most often is that he hasn't actually done a great deal. So you can't tie that much to him except the generic attacks that you would hear on any Republican. But that's actually not what drives personal animosity in in politics. So it might be quite difficult to get Tim Scott. I I would add another layer to that, which is just, you know, you you always go down when you're attacking someone else or you tend to go down. But I think that would be particularly true trying to directly take down... Tim Scott, uh, if you're if you're another 
candidate. And I also take your point. It, it's it's almost uh, axiomatic that if you win uh, a presidential nomination, you figure out a way to to do it that's different than what had been standard coalitions or different than what, what has been the schematic that people have been working from at the beginning of the process. With that, Noah, exit question to you. Ron, uh, sorry, Tim Scott is more likely in your mind to be the Republican nominee or to be the running mate of someone else? Uh, well, he's more likely to be the running mate at this stage <clears throat> than he is to be the nominee. But um, I would just add that as we get cl further and further down the line, and Tim Scott has money to test the proposition that he can't win delegates. So he's going to be in this for quite some time, and he will attract the attention of Democrats. And his secret ace in the hole, it's not very much of a secret, in fact, but it is an ace in the hole, that the dynamics of negative partisanship will benefit him quite a bit when Democrats train their fire on Tim Scott, because they have precisely one pitch, and that is to call mm -hmm. him yep. an Uncle Tom. Right. That is precisely yep. what his opponent called him in those words in 2022. She was forced to apologize for it. It's essentially the critique that Barack Obama leveraged against him. Mm -hmm. When he said that he's, oh, he's just, he likes all this racial happy talk and he, he believes in progress and progress as we know is impossible. Um, this is the sort of thing that really works to his benefit among Republican voters. And it, it, no other candidate can tap into that. Perhaps, maybe Nikki Haley, just by virtue of her, her background, perhaps will heard. But only Tim Scott and the, and the attack on him is going to be, well, you supported uh, racial rapprochement in the form of criminal justice reform and various other initiatives in ways that are just far too liberal. And that's not going to land if Democrats are calling him an Uncle Tom. Mm -hmm. Jim Garrity, more likely to be the nominee or a Veep pick? More likely to be the Veep pick. Um, I don't know if Trump is the nominee, whether he looks to Tim Scott as the um natural choice. I, I think the nice guy image of Tim Scott might remind Trump of uh, Mike Pence. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, and I also wonder if Tim Scott really thinks that being Trump's running mate is necessarily the best option for him in the long term. Because remember what happened to Trump's last <laughs> running mate, you know. Um, so my guess, I, I don't know if we see Tim Scott on the ticket if he's not the, if he's not the nominee. Charlie. That's a great question. I don't think that Tim Scott would be Donald Trump's vice presidential nominee. I could see him being DeSantis's vice presidential nominee. So I suppose the question becomes, do I think it's more likely that Ron DeSantis or Tim Scott becomes the nominee of Donald Trump isn't? And at the moment, my answer is still DeSantis. So I suppose I think that Tim Scott is more likely to be the vice presidential nominee than the presidential nominee. I think more likely to be the Veep pick, in part because I've reversed myself. Uh, Charlie reminded me in an offline conversation the other day, I said when this came up uh, episodes ago that Trump wouldn't pick Scott. I think there's a, there's a chance of it, and there's a chance if DeSantis is a nominee, he would pick him as well. So th those are at least two options to be on a, a ticket. And one of those guys has very significant odds of being the nominee. So I'm going to say Veep pick with that. Let's hear from our second sponsor this episode, Health, Wealth, and Happiness. Three goals that are essential to our lives, but attaining them is often impeded by heavy-handed government controls. That's why we must free the economy. Free the Economy is a weekly podcast produced by the Competitive Enterprise Institute that documents the opportunities for financial success and self-fulfillment in a world with less government control. How can smart urbanism improve our lives? Where is economic freedom under attack? How can we unleash the potential 
of small business owners and innovators. Each week, host Richard Morrison offers news you can use and fascinating conversations with experts in their fields to answer these questions and more. I think we can all agree freedom is contagious. So check out Free the Economy wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org slash free the economy. Please check it out. So Jim, as we know, listeners come to this podcast as a source of the very latest news and gossip from the world of country music. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm so pathetic in this regard. The, the, basically, the only encounters I, I've ever had, or the, the, the only reason I learned about country singers uh, was, was going over to Fox News back in the day. And Catherine Lopez is a, our colleague, dear colleague, is a huge country music fan. So I'd, I'd call her up or, or uh, te- uh, email her afterwards Catherine, I can't remember quite who it was who was doing the Fox and Friends Sunday concert or whatever uh, um, Friday concert series. I think his name was Garth. You know, if, if you heard of this guy, you know who is he? So of course I had not heard of. Or maybe it was Chris Gaines. <laughs> so I'm not even sure I'm saying his name correctly. Jason Aldean. Aldean is that the way you pronounce it? Yes. He has a, a, a song out uh, about trying it in a small town. The theme of which is you know you can burn the flag and spit in the face of cops or or engage in, in various acts of mayhem in a city and get away with it but you're not getting away with it in a, a small town a, a cliched sentiment really but this this has now been a major focus of controversy the last two weeks country music television has pulled this uh, video off its air and you wrote about the controversy today and the morning jolt what is your take well i i would point out you know, I, I like certain country music songs to kind of cross over into the pop music area. I'm not going to pretend to be a huge fan of country music. Uh, and I first heard about this. Oh, you know, this this just seems like the most cliched thing in the world. A country star who, by the way, has spoken positively to Trump and apparently was at his New Year's Eve party coming out and saying, you know, all that terrible crime and violence in the big cities. Well, you wouldn't be able to pull that off here in my small town because we're we're rough and tough and we know how to take care of people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and our colleague Catherine wrote about it yesterday, and the reaction was apoplectic. Uh, some people, you know, apoplectically negative, believing that, you know, oh, Jason Aldean is, is a good guy and is standing up for our values, and how dare you have something. Uh, Catherine's headline was, Jason Aldean isn't helping. And read the column itself. I'm not going to be able to do it, jealous, do it justice, you know, speaking off the cuff. Um I, in today's jolt, I describe this, you know, Catherine weighing in on a hot button social issue like this as kind of like Maria von Trapp being dropped into the world of post the post apocalyptic world of Mad Max. Um, Catherine is this wise, deeply Catholic, faithful person who always looks for the best in everyone and guided by a sense of faith and mercy, tries to bring out the best in everyone. And as we all know, online social debates don't have that as their dominant theme. And in fact, it generally is how can you dunk on and trash someone. Uh, so I was like, all right, what is this all about? Why? Because, you know, this this piece blew up and it was kind of the sense of like, okay, what what is going on here? What makes this so big? And it's not that Aldine is openly saying hooray for vigilanteism. It's kind of between the, uh, the, 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 the lines there. What is very clear is first of all, it opens and addresses, interestingly, this, this topic that is on people's minds, high crime rates, right? Opening lyrics are sucker punch somebody on a sidewalk, carjack an old lady at a red light, Pull a gun on the owner of a liquor store. You think it's cool. Act like a fool if you like. I mean, that's pretty much a Fox News violent crime is rising B-roll tape right there. Right? That we, we all know this is going on. 
And the message is, it also talks about, you know, attacking the police, which <clears throat> is a little bit ironic, considering how in Dirt Road Anthem, uh, Aldine had talked about chilling on the dirt road, laid back, swerving like I'm George Jones, smoke rolling out the window, and ice cold, cold beer sitting on the console. Uh, country songs know that George Jones was unfortunately a very serious alcoholic and had lots of run-ins with the law for driving under the influence. So when you hear the, hey, respect the cops, coming from the guy who's reminiscing to about the good old days of hiding from the cops and drinking and driving, okay, that's a little incongruent. But I think at the end of it, like the core of it is this, well, we don't have these problems, or you, you, won't, you wouldn't succeed with that. You wouldn't get away with that in a small town uh, because we have good old boys raised up right if you're looking for a fight. Now, some people will interpret that as vigilantism. It certainly doesn't sound like Aldine is singing, don't try this in a small town because our police forces are so diligent and professional and determined that they will catch you. Um, and so it's kind of like, we're, too, we're tough. Don't you mess with us. You know, you start trouble, we'll, end, we'll catch you and we'll get you and we'll hurt you. And, you know, that's, that's certainly implying vigilantism, if not outright, you know, celebrating it or stouting it. I can see why people look at this. And, oh, by the way, it isn't really held out in the numbers, the idea that American small towns are safe and big cities are dangerous and violent. It all depends on which small town and which big city you're looking at. Um, so anyway, so I, on the one hand, you can say, all right, so here you have a song that is pretty much just, just almost every single ongoing crime, violence, rioting, flag burning, respect for cop, all, this, all, this, all these hot button issues put into one song. And kind of this implication, which is very flattering to the small town uh, you know, record buy, album buying audience, well, we don't have that problem because we're good old boys who are raised right. Well, the thing is, there are plenty of towns that have good old boys raised right that still have crime. And you can find good old boys raised right in the big city. I don't really like this idea of, oh, we who live in one part of the country are good and you who live in that part of the country are bad. Um, and also this idea that, well, the reason those big cities have that problem is because yeah, we take care of our own. Well, that kind of implies that big city residents don't take care of their own. I don't think that's really the problem, why there's high crime in big cities. The reason there's high crime in big cities is part because of ineffective and terrible local, off, lo local officials, uh, local prosecutors who refuse to put violent criminals behind bars, and police forces that are variously underfunded, undermanned, have recruitment problems, have tensions with the local community. Like, in real life, this stuff is complicated. Now, this doesn't make for a good and fun country song. But I think I can see why this touched a nerve and why some people are reacting very negatively and very strongly. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not saying this, the song should be banned. I'm not saying it should be cancel culture. By the way, let's point out that uh, country music television refusing to play the video is probably the single biggest move that could help boost uh, songs, the sales of this song. It has skyrocketed ever since then. It's apparently you're much better off having your song, having your, your music video uh, refused to be shown by CMT than by actually having it shown mm -hmm. by CMT. Um, but in the end, like, you know, this, I, I don't doubt Jason Eldian is, you know, believes what he says and it probably makes people feel good to say, ah, we don't have that problem here because we take care of our own, but that's not really why there's violent crime in America's big cities. Yeah. So Charlie, there, there is obviously a, a hint of vigilantism in this song, but <clears throat> it's not as though anyone's going to get lynched because of this song. If you rate the, uh, graphic nature and violent nature of um, ver various uh, songs in our pop culture. Th this is way, 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 way down the list. But for whatever reason, uh, folks decided to focus on this. Probably has something to do with uh, Jason Aldean and or his, his wife's uh, musings about January 6th and uh, 
coziness with parts of Mega World, but anyway, they've they've made it a big deal, and as though it's a clear present danger to every African American in the United States. I'm nothing if not consistent on this question. My view of this is the same as has been my view every time the press has decided that a problem song has arrived, and that is that I could not care about anything less. The hallmark of a free country is the production of art that some like and some dislike. I can't remember exactly which songs I've written about over the years, but I can tell you that they're by men and women and white people and black people. They're in hip-hop genre and country genre and hard rock genre. And I've defended them all because this stuff doesn't upset me. I have a marginal interest in keeping some of this stuff away from children. But beyond that, I am utterly baffled why it is that this one has been chosen. And you said for whatever reason this one has been chosen. I'd like to know the reason. Uh, In the sea of music, both new and old, that has been produced and released. This, to me, looks a little bit like the attack on Florida's curriculum. It could have been advanced the other way around. The argument that is made for it could be applied to all manner of other inputs. Why did this two-month-old song get singled out? I don't begrudge people who disagree with me on this, providing they're consistent. The piece that Catherine Lopez wrote is very much not my view, but that's who Catherine Lopez is. She believes that about all sorts of music and movies and TV shows and so on. But so many of the people who have made this into an issue do not. They don't think that music is dangerous in other contexts. They would never start a national conversation about artists whose politics they admired or who came from groups that they believed to be virtuous. If the lyrics did not discuss small towns or an opposition to gun control, but something else, they wouldn't bring it up. And I don't understand that. I'm I'm not sure why this one has come through. I mean, there have been songs that have caused debate while I've been in the United States that are pretty much filth. Do you remember that song, WAP? That was filth. (laughs) I never cared about it because I don't. I've listened to hip-hop that indisputably glorifies violence, talks about killing cops, talks about killing pregnant women. (laughs) Okay, listen to it or don't listen to it. That's your choice. Why, though, did this one rise to the level. I'm not sure. I don't see anything particularly different about this. I think it speaks to the remarkable cultural power of a small group of people within academia and journalism that they can do this, and I'm refusing to be taken in by it. So Noah, knowing how closely you follow country music, I'm just going to let you take this wherever you want to go. (laughs) Yeah, well, I can't say why this one popped, as Charlie said, in, in ways that other songs don't. But Yes, I don't pay very much close attention to pop culture generally, um, save for when it becomes 
a substitute for political debates. And that's generally my grand theory of pop cultural controversies like this, is that it is a um, entry-level political debate. There's no barrier to entry into this. You don't have to do any of the homework about American history, about criminology, about um, the public policy that might inform what this is about. You can apply your identity to it, and the arbiters of uh, American discourse will lend your identity sufficient gravity to allow you to opine with authority on a subject that has absolutely no consequence. No political consequence, no social consequence. It is an exercise in, it's an onanistic exercise, frankly, in uh, 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 giving yourself, aggrandizing yourself and giving yourself permission to wax philosophical on a subject that has very little uh, downside for you. The stakes of the debate are pretty low. And that's basically what my last two books are about, um, is the extent to which we, uh, the, <clears throat> the national political culture applies and gives so much weight to incredibly inconsequential debates because they attract a lot of attention. There's, there's no reason for you to sit back and listen to the experts on this because there are no experts on this. You have as much authority as anybody else to opine on this sort of thing. And that's why it generates a lot of traction in pop cultural, pop political venues. Um, but in isolation, if you were to really analyze it, there's no grand, uh, no grander social phenomenon that's being explored here. It is really about the more about the people engaging in the debate than the substance of the debate itself. Charlie Cook, since we're talking about pop culture, let's go a little further afield for the exit question to you first. Taylor Swift is the best American singer-songwriter of the last 50 years. True or false? False. Ah, all right, let's, let's try this. I thought you were going to ask a Beatles question. Nah, Taylor Swift is I, better nah. than the Beatles, or Taylor Swift so is better than... So, best, best female singer-songwriter, American female singer-songwriter of the last 50 years. True or false? Is this a question about my objective take on her musical ability or what I personally prefer? Either. She's obviously extremely talented and successful, and I like her music fine. <laughs> She's okay. Well, 50 years is a lot of music. I need to sit and think about that one. You've asked me another impossible exit question. Jim Garrity, true or false? Best singer-songwriter in America, last 50 years. Taylor Swift. I'm going to say no. Mm. Um, but I am absolutely not her demographic. So, <laughs> Anna, I mean, it's probably the not the right joke. Singer-songwriter part that's throwing me, because if the question is singer, then obviously no. You, you've got... It's a massive compliment to choose from. But singer-songwriter is an interesting one because she has written so many different songs and different styles. Ah, there you go. Warming up a little bit. Noah Rothman. I can't even begin to answer this question. I, I just have no background in this. Um, but no, she is probably not the best female singer-songwriter of the last 50 years. I mean, you could think, you could talk about Aretha Franklin or... Not a songwriter. She That's wasn't. why I say... That's why I say it's difficult. Well, I mean, Lady I don't Gaga know. was. Yeah. And is. And is a Very better singer. She's better, she's better than Lady Gaga. I don't so think that's I'm true. Say, I will also say that uh, Lana Del Rey is probably the best pop, female pop artist. There's a lot of recency bias mm. in this conversation. 
I'm going to say she is not the best American singer-songwriter the last 50 years. I would say Bruce Springsteen, personally, but I would say she's the best but female. But female. Uh, I, well, it's, it's two, two different questions. <laughs> okay, better I, so than- I, thought, I thought Charlie... I thought Charlie was was uh, was um, thinking of maybe a, a male Rich alternative. The rest of us so I don't. threw female at him. So I think the male alternative is Bruce Springsteen, but there is no female alternative. Taylor Swift is the best American female singer songwriter of the last fifty years. Take it to the bank over Joni Mitchell. Yes. Okay. So with that, let me do a quick plug. For NR Plus, and I'm going to do this a little, little differently this episode. I'm just going to read from a real email received by yours truly the other day, Rich. After years of shamelessly mooching off my employer's NR Plus account to read the corner and other pieces, I finally became an NR digital and print subscriber and all for a price cheaper than a fill-up of my oversized SUV. It was a recent guilt-laden plug you did on the editors that pushed me over the edge. But in all seriousness, I love the magazine, the various products. This was long overdue. I'm obviously protecting the identity of the author of this email. Let's just call him Jim. But is Jim really better than, than all of you? Does he have a more of a conscious conscience than, than all of you who have not yet signed up for NR Plus? I can't. I just can't believe that is true. So uh, play catch up, a little catch up to uh, my correspondent and sign up for NR Plus. There are all sorts of reasons to do it, but if it's guilt, that uh, that's what it takes to push you over the edge, fine. Feel guilty about it and join tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR Plus. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim Garrity, you were recently out on a lake. Yes, uh, visiting friends. We usually get together with them in Fourth uh, of July, but they're uh, we were traveling that day, so we had kind of our makeup for that. And we did a cookout, had a lot of fun. But then we went out, they have a little, kind of a pontoon-style boat, go out to the middle of the lake, and it gets so quiet, and it gets so peaceful, and you got, like, dragonflies buzzing around and stuff. One, I always tell myself, oh, if I, had, you know, if I lived on a lake, I'd be doing it every day. I don't know if I actually would be doing it every day. But just knowing that you have that option to say, you know what, I'm seceding from the world. I'm going off. I'm on my lake. I'm in the middle of the water. You can't reach me. I am creating gym land right here. I've got I've got some drinks. I've got some food. I'm gonna la- I'm gonna hang out here. I can understand. I am envious for those of you who are lucky enough to be living on or near <laughs> water. Noah Rothman, you've been watching the American Gladiators documentary on Netflix. It just started it last night, and um, it's sort of a tired formula where it's you know this is what all this sorted stuff was happening behind the scenes of this cultural phenomenon and we're going to bring it to you here um but it's it yeah just wait till they do the documentary about the editor's podcast oh that would be fantastic (laughs) i like it because it just it's right in my nostalgic sweet spot this show aired from 89 to 96 which i think for me was like second to eighth grade um, we didn't have cable at the time until the advent of satellite television, so this is pretty much all I watched. And there's just this Wild West quality to how we approached life in that period, that there was just the the kind of hand-wringing and the societal impact of XYZ 
just didn't register. It was just, hey, we'll, we'll blow stuff up, we'll beat people up, we'll break bones, we'll be sexually explicit, whatever entertains the audience. And it's just, it is a, uh, a sentiment that is almost anathema today, but it's just how people operated back then. And it's, it's interesting to go back to take a sample of that mentality. Charlie, you lost in a game of Monopoly to one of your kids and you were actually trying. I was to win. trying. I was trying my hardest. I don't let my kids win at anything. I don't think it's good for them. So when I teach them a game, I play properly. But I even went up into my sixth gear in this game because I really did not want to lose Monopoly to my seven-year-old. And I lost a game of Monopoly to my seven-year-old. Now, of course, there's some luck involved in the game, but he honestly strategically outthought me. I was simultaneously very proud of him and, and pretty embarrassed that I'd lost to a seven-year-old. But that's why I have a liquor cabinet. <laughs> so I was recently up in Maine for a family vacation. And although I've talked about how much I love the heat a lot over the years on this podcast, I'm getting actually a, a, a changing a little bit on that. I'm not quite as much into the heat as I used to be. So it was really nice to be up in Maine where it's still summer, you know, all the benefits of summer, the light out for a long time, you know, everything's in um, uh, green, et cetera. But it's a little little chilly in the morning, a little chilly in the in the evening and a, and a really uh, warm summery day in between and went to a Portland Sea Dogs game, the AA Boston Red Sox, unfortunately, affiliate. And it's just a, a, a wonderful time. It's a, uh, a real community feel there. It's a, a, a ballpark. I guess it's, I found out it's not technically in downtown Portland, but it's, it is nestled in between some railroad tracks and, and the, the street grid the way ballparks used to be and was a wonderful experience. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? Well, I was very tempted to go with the work of Andy McCarthy this week, but I'm going to leave that for anybody else because I have a feeling this is the pinata everybody wants to take a whack at. Um, my colleague Dominic Pino wrote about uh, artificial intelligence, particularly in the context of the ongoing Hollywood strike, and just kind of tackles it in a very thoughtful way um, about why, you know, the heart of this issue and this dispute and what artificial intelligence can do and what it can't do, what it can replace of a human, what it can't replace. I think it's a topic that's worth more, um, more chewing over, more contemplation, um, because all too often it just turns into, you know, ah, I hate Hollywood or something like that. And I think that's not really grasping what's at issue here. Uh, once again, you should be reading everything Dominic writes, but this one was particularly thoughtful. No, what's your pick? I don't know if this was done on Friday or not, but it deserves to be highlighted um, because it was so influential. And that was uh, Charlie Cook's piece, the first piece on this Florida Um Curriculum controversy entitled Kamala Harris is brazenly lying about Florida's slavery curriculum. He does um, real spade work here in ways that I hadn't seen any other conservative uh, outlet do. And um, it's a really valuable contribution to the dynamic around this debate um, because it was the first pushback that I really saw. And it's it's become the, the bulwark around which uh, DeSantis's defenders have rallied. And it's really important. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Charlie. I'm going to pick Conservatives Are Getting Barbie Wrong by Jack Butler. Now, I haven't seen Barbie, and I haven't been remotely involved in any of the discourse around Barbie as to whether it's good or bad or 
woke or conservative or subversive or obvious or any of that, but I am, first off, appreciative that we have run a piece called Conservatives Are Getting Barbie Wrong and uh, pieces saying this is the worst thing that has ever happened to the world, and thereby confusing many of our critics who don't seem to understand why it is that we would have two different takes on the same movie at the same website, and who in some cases have suggested that having tried to start a boycott of Barbie, we're now changing our orientation around it and positioning ourselves as a pro-Barbie outlet, rather than, of course, (laughs) Jack Butler just having to go and see the movie and then writing about it. So I, I think this is a good example of... A, how National Review yields different opinions on the same topic, and B, how this seems to profoundly confuse people who don't have the moral or ideological imagination to understand why. So my pick is the new print cover, and I'm not talking about the package of pieces. I'm talking about the literal cover. Uh, just occurred to me I've been remiss forever in not picking our characterist Roman Gen, a brilliant artist, a brilliant guy, a uh, incredibly entertaining and idiosyncratic character who's been drawing for us for, I don't know, like 30, 30 years now. And he has some subjects that he's just particularly good at. And since uh, Roman is a, a Russian uh, who does not like Vladimir Putin, Putin is one of his better uh, subjects. And, and this is another great anti-Putin uh, portrait highlighting the genius of Roman. With that, that's all the time we have. You've been listening to a National U podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National U magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Noah. Thanks to Waterstone and the Free the Economy podcast. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.